Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is a summer of Eleanor's picks on Writers & Company. Today, Oliver Sacks, the humanist neurologist and best-selling author of case histories such as The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, Awakenings, and An Anthropologist on Mars. Oliver Sacks was simply one of my favorite people. His combination of intelligence, compassion, and enthusiasm was irresistible. I was thrilled when I first got to meet him almost 30 years ago. I'd been reading the pieces that became his 1995 book, An Anthropologist on Mars, Seven Paradoxical Tales. These cases, from a surgeon with Tourette's syndrome, to an autistic woman with a Ph.D. in animal behavior, to a blind masseur who suddenly regains his sight, made up some of the best, most moving stories, fiction or nonfiction, that I'd come across in years. Sachs was giving a lecture at the Clark Institute of Psychiatry in Toronto, and I managed to arrange an interview. When he came into the studio, he was warm and ebullient. We talked about his cases and his earlier work. When explaining his choice of specialty, he said that the brain is the most interesting, complex, and wonderful object in the universe. Oliver Sachs was an unusual and in some ways an old-fashioned man, harking back to a 19th-century humanist tradition. He was raised in a house filled with books in London, he studied at Oxford, loved music, and had a great belief in its therapeutic value. In fact, I interviewed him in 2008 about his book, Musicophilia. Both his parents were physicians, his father practicing well into his 90s, and his three older brothers studied medicine. Sachs also talked about his sense of remove and said that he himself felt at times like an anthropologist on Mars, more of a describer than a full participant in life. He kept journals from a young age and drew on these, first for Uncle Tungsten, Memories of a Chemical Boyhood, and later, more revealingly, for his autobiography, On the Move. He'd already described some of his drug experiences in the book Hallucinations, but here he wrote about his passion as a young man for motorbikes, road trips, and bodybuilding, about homosexual experiences and his 35 years of celibacy. The book's publication coincided with Sachs's diagnosis of late-stage cancer, so I never had the chance to talk to him about it. He died in 2015. He was 82. But back in 2001, we met to talk about his earlier memoir, Uncle Tungsten, in which he explored his childhood via his passion for chemistry. At the time of our conversation, he was 68 years old. The house that you grew up in in London in the 1930s and 40s sounds like a child's dream home, especially in the 30s before the war. Can you describe it for me? Yes, it it seemed like a sort of magical house to me, although I think it might have seemed uh, a large, awkward Edwardian house to anyone else. It was built around 1902. It was a big corner house. It had lots and lots of rooms, uh, not only for the immediate family, but for various people who lived in in those days in the 30s. There would be a nanny and and a nurse and a cook housekeeper. And um, And a chauffeur. uh, And a chauffeur and a gardener and so forth. And there was also special rooms where the patients came in. Both my parents were physicians and they had their surgery, their office in the house. And there were lots of sort of odd rooms which sometimes just seemed to have things like knitting machines in or sports equipment. There was a uh, a library, which I loved, which was full of books and also games. 
and a tiny, mysterious cupboard under the stairs, which no one else was small enough to get into, <laughs> uh, and which I, I used to imagine was the, the entrance to, to another world, and, uh, and, and, a, and a great loft, a great attic. The house had a sort of complex roof with eaves and gables, and I used to imagine that it was a sort of a giant crystal. I was interested in crystals, and a lot of music in the house. There were two pianos, and one of my brothers played the flute, and the other played the clarinet, and um, a lot of a lot of coming and going. No, not only was it a family home, as you say, it was where your parents, both of whom were doctors, saw many of their patients. What was that like growing up with their work so much part of the household? Well, I think it was both fascinating and perhaps slightly resented. Um, family life and, and the professional life were, were very close because they, their patients came. Uh, I wasn't allowed into the surgery Although, although I was fascinated by it, I would occasionally see a strange violet light coming from under the door. This was because, because the ultraviolet light was being used, and I occasionally got a glimpse of these strange instruments. Um, my mother was a surgeon and an obstetrician, and, uh, and I would see all sorts of, of strange and disconcerting instruments. Later, I... Um, I think I sometimes felt that the patients were intrusive and that it was our house and and not fully ours. I certainly felt that with the uh, when there were sort of political and mostly Zionist meetings in the house, and uh, I would hear people shouting and banging the table downstairs and coming upstairs and sort of looking for the lavatory and barging into my little room. I, I I've had a hatred of all political meetings. <laughs> and all, all political impulses ever since then. Because of, not because they were barging into your room, but because they were... Uh, um, uh, well, I, I think um, I think because I thought of them as as noisy and quarrelsome and uh, and because they were barging into my room. <laughs> I, I, I think it was probably, a, you know, a very, a very unfair feeling. Later, I, I would go out with my father on some of his house calls, and, and, I, and I loved that. I loved going out with him. But I'm not quite sure that I liked the patients coming in. But this, uh, this was very common then in that era, that, that doctors would have surgeries in their own houses. Sometimes there was a different entrance for the patients, but there wasn't with us. And was it partly invading your territory, or was it partly taking over your parents? I think both. <laughs> both. Your father was uh, born in Lithuania, but he left when he was uh, with his family when he was only three or four. What kind of a person was he? Um, well, my father, I think, was very genial and outgoing and immensely sociable. I don't think he ever forgot anyone's name, and he would he would love the details of families and, and things. Um... My mother was uh, was extremely shy, and uh, I think probably a little a little withdrawn socially, or, although very much at ease with 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 her patients and her students. When in fact I think she became a sort of a sort of performer. Sometimes there were later I heard all sorts of stories about this. Um, well, you heard a story about what <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. about your appearance um, in um, class. Um, 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 <laughs> yes, well, well, the uh, indeed. No, um, uh, many years later, when I took my own first book to an editor, actually uh, an editor at Faber's, they'd published a book of my mother's before that. This editor said, "You, you know, we we've met before," and I said, I, "I'm." don't remember it. I'm not very good at faces. And she said, no, she said, you wouldn't. She said, it was like this. She said, I was uh, one of your mother's students, and your mother was lecturing us on breastfeeding. And uh, after a while, she said, there's nothing difficult or embarrassing about it. And she bent down and pulled out a little baby which had been concealed at the foot of her desk and breastfed it in front of the class. And she said this was in September 1933, and you were the infant. So, as you say, um, so at two months, I, I was introduced <laughs> in this way. Um, and I, I think this, this was typical of my mother, in a way, who was so uh, sort of shy, you know, um, almost to muteness in some situations, but, but perfectly capable of, of breastfeeding a baby in front of 50 people. <laughs> 
on the other hand. And I think I'm probably rather rather similar. I can be absolutely mute sometimes in, in parties and on the other hand sort of be quite outrageous in front of a thousand people. Uh, what what uh, obviously you don't breastfeed in front of a thousand, but what what uh, precipitates the the performer in you? Well, I, I'm a storyteller and and a demonstrator as well, and I, as I think my mother was, and uh, it has to be something um I don't say in a way something outside myself or something to do with teaching or curiosity. Now, I, for example, um. I've taken again to carrying around a little a little spectroscope, as I used to do when I was a boy. You know, a spectroscope will analyze lights into all their different colors, and they'll show the particular wavelengths of, of different atoms which are excited. And um, when I started writing about being a boy with a spectroscope, I had to get another spectroscope and, as it were, become that boy again. But uh, a few months ago, I... Um, uh, I was gazing into a, a local bar which had neon lights and sodium lights and all sorts of fluorescent lights. And obviously the people inside were getting rather, you know, rather bewildered and rather upset at someone looking at, at them, as they thought, through, through a mysterious tiny instrument. So I then went into the bar and sort of showed everyone the spectroscope and had them all look through it. And in 10 minutes, I had them all talking about spectroscopy instead of sex. <laughs> 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 and, and there have been many similar things. There was, there was, a, there was an eclipse uh, oh, about a year ago, a lunar eclipse, and I, I ran out with it. I have a nice 20 times telescope, and I ran out with it. I wanted to draw everyone's attention. I saw a quarrel going on in the parking lot opposite me. Uh, I think some woman felt she was overcharged, and I went up to the two of them, and I said, look, I said, stop quarreling for a moment. I said, there is a wonderful eclipse. Here's a telescope. Look at it. You will never see such an eclipse again, and you can continue your quarrel afterwards. <laughs> and they were so taken aback that this is exactly what they did. And they, they, were, they were filled with wonder for a while. And then as soon as I went away, I heard the quarrel being resumed. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I think there was something of this sort in, in, in my mother. And the, the demonstration, the teaching, the sharing of enthusiasm takes one out of this sort of enclosed, solipsistic, sort of frightened mode. She shared a lot with you, it seems, from the way you describe it in, in your book, Uncle Tungsten, in terms of responding to so many of your questions and pointing things out. and um, Even though she was running this household and, and being a yes. doctor and doing all these other things. Um, I, I, think, uh, I think she often forgot how young I was. I, I, I mean, once, um, as a boy, I, I, I adored metals of, of all sorts. And she once showed me that when tin or zinc were bent, they emitted a strange noise. It's called the cry of tin or zinc. And she uh, and I said, you know, what's it from? And she said, it's due to deformation of the crystal structure, you know, forgetting I was five. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't possibly understand her. And then I think later, in a way which, which also, I think, distressed me a good deal, um, she would sometimes bring home stillborn fetuses. And um, she was also a professor of anatomy and, and, and demonstrate the anatomy to me and, and want me to dissect them with her. And uh, I found that rather, rather, rather grisly. And it may be a reason why I've slightly disliked anatomy <laughs> ever since. Do you think she, when you say she forgot that you were that young? Uh, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think um, I think she hoped I would sort of follow in her footsteps and and be an anatomist surgeon, but um, I, I think you know her enthusiasm would take over uh, as when she was sort of breastfed me <laughs> or whatever in front of class. But but here I think uh, there wasn't probably enough empathy for what does an eleven year old feel when he sees a human fetus and is asked to dissect it. Um, so that shocked. That was a little premature. There was another instance you describe. I think when you were fourteen, when she arranged for you to to dissect an actual female cadaver of a girl who was also yeah, fourteen. Yeah. Um, well, well, certainly. Uh, yes, she'd asked a uh, a colleague to introduce me to this, and uh, I, I was. Uh, I mean, as I talk, I can I can almost sort of see the the yellow oil skin in which the the corpses were, uh, the cadavers were were wrapped to keep them from drying out, and, and the smell of of formalin and and 
mortification. And uh, as it happened, the corpse which had been selected for me was in fact of a, a girl of, of my own age. And I, I, I wondered what she died from and what had happened, but I didn't, I didn't ask in a way. I'm glad I didn't ask, and I had to try and think of this as a, uh, you know, as, as just tissues. But, but I think it, I think it scared the hell out of me. Did you say anything? I mean, you spent a month dissecting um, the lay. No, no, I've never been able to say anything uh, for myself. I, um, I, I hated evacuation, and which, uh, which was a, a very a very bad time, but I, but I, I didn't say anything. I find it very difficult to say anything for myself, although I find it very easy to say something for my patients or for my students. Do you understand why? Um, I don't quite understand why. I think I, I have to work that out with my analyst. <laughs> <laughs> because certainly at the time that of, of the um, uh, dissection, you... you the way you describe it now, and and probably even at the time experienced it, it, it you even speculate on your ability to engage with warm living human beings because of the the, um, the trauma. Yeah, well, it, it was it certainly sort of it was it was quite quite a shock to um to, to see sort of someone of my own age in that in that state. Um, <clears throat> although I think probably um in some ways connecting may have been made more difficult generally by evacuation experiences. Many people of my generation have spoken of, of this. And I think after a bad sort of uh, evacuation, a traumatic experience, there are difficulties in bonding and belonging, uh, which, which, which can be lifelong. And then they're not absolute, but, 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 but I think sometimes a special effort is made, but certainly sort of, uh, you know, um, dissecting a corpse too early didn't, didn't help. When you were, let's, Oliver Sachs, let's, let's talk a little about this evacuation experience. When you were six years old, you and your brother, who was five years older than you, were sent out to the country to a, to a school because uh, children were being evacuated out of London. Uh, yeah, parents were put under a lot of pressure to evacuate children. I mean, millions literally were evacuated. Sometimes it worked out well. My brother Michael and I were sent to a school which had been uh, reconstituted or constituted really by a schoolmaster at his previous school. The schoolmaster was apparently a fairly decent man then, but I think he became sort of deranged uh, when he had absolute power in this strange boarding school in the Midlands and a very um, unpleasant, sadistic streak came out. And so there was a, a great deal of, of beating. Uh, I don't know that the word abuse existed, <laughs> but, but, but in retrospect, one would say it was a very abusive environment. We were all beaten uh, for, for tiny infractions and sometimes apparently for, for nothing at all. Um, for the love of it, or for his love of it. And uh, food was very short, and parcels were looted, and uh, there was a lot of bullying. And almost all the other kids at the school complained. My brother and I never complained. We've always had difficulty sort of telling it. And finally the school got closed down. And I came back to London in 1943. I was 10 years old. And, and almost immediately, I think fell in love with chemistry and science, um, greatly inspired by an uncle, or actually by two uncles of mine. And I think that, uh, uh, that science seemed to promise a realm of, uh, uh, of clarity and order and control and predictability and sort of infinitely far from, from what, what I was then seeing, I think, as the capricious and, and dangerous and sort of terrifying world of of people, at least of people like like the headmaster. Because even at Brayfield, you're, you um, were attracted to numbers, and particularly prime numbers. And... Oh, oh, yes, yeah. V yeah, before the chemistry, um, uh, yeah, at school, I, 
Yeah, I, there I, seemed to be a security, a, yeah, a refuge in, in numbers. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, one needed a refuge, and it had to be a, a sort of mental refuge in a way. I especially love prime numbers because uh, because they were indivisible. indivisible. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and they couldn't be broken down. And I, I felt I was being broken down all the while. Um, I mean, three seventeen is three seventeen. It's a, it has a wonderful, incorruptible, steely individuality. Can't be cowed. Can't be broken. And and. Um, uh, but beside the sort of moral character of autonomy, I, I was fascinated that there should be prime numbers. And I wondered if there was any why and if there was any logic or pattern to them. And I used to make enormous charts, prime numbers up to 10,000, block them in. Did it make sense? Was there any mysterious determination of these numbers? I never found any, but I think in a way this was a, a sort of intellectual precursor of my later love of the periodic table and the way in which all the elements were related and their numbers and and that that does have a clear and beautiful determination because while you were still at Brayfield one of one of the respites was when you were able to visit an aunt of yours who and, and she introduced you to numbers as um, well and it, yeah, this is. Um, I've actually spoken of this aunt, my aunt Elaine, in, in earlier books and in a leg to stand on and so forth. She was a. Um, she had founded a, a school in Cheshire. It was a school for delicate children, which at that time met children, mostly poor children with asthma, tuberculosis, maybe autism. I, 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 I wanted to be at her school, but 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 I was not a a delicate child for Manchester, <laughs> although I often wished I had been. Then uh, she loved botany and uh, and all the kids had gardens, but she would sometimes take me in the woods or show me pine cones. Uh, and the spirals on pine cones or the florets on sunflowers and show me that these form a certain numerical series, sort of 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, so forth, each number being the sum of the two before, and how arithmetic was somehow built into this. And she used to say, God thinks in numbers. Numbers are the way the world is put together. What did you make of that? Because you were starting to doubt God around that time. Well, I was indeed, um, I became very doubtful, I think too early, of a, of a personal God. I think that um, my, I don't know what my parents actually believed, but in practice this was a fairly orthodox household. And I think there were a lot of, of lovely lyrical rituals. I used to love to watch my mother lighting the Sabbath lights on, on Friday afternoon the sabbath is welcomed in as a bride and i would somehow imagine the sabbath the peace of god as a sort of a cosmic event the peace of god settling on different star systems all over the universe but i think that when i was sent away which i which in a way broke some of the trust and the bond between between my parents and myself or at least i felt this uh, I think it went along with a sort of turning against the ultimate parental figure up in the sky. And I think there was, uh, from that time, I never had and have never had any sense of a personal God. But on the other hand, a God as nature, God as order, I think can also inspire a sort of mystical or religious feeling and... Um, and sort of a god who thinks in numbers, and uh, uh, and what some philosophers have called a divine mathematics, I think sort of came in its place. I, I love the description of the way you tested for the existence of God. Oh yeah, well it, it was a monstrous. Um, see, when faith had gone, I uh, I decided on experiment. I you said, were about I, seven, I, eight years old. Yeah, uh, yeah, in my seventh year, I was at Brayfield. I said, I want evidence. Okay, God. Um, listen to me, I'm going to plant two rows of radishes and, and you're on test. Um, I want you to bless one or curse one, at least ensure that it grows differently. And of course, they, they grew the same. So I said, well, okay, you know, fail the test, no God. But I mean, even to do such a, a, a ludicrous test sort of, sort of implies a, 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 a sort of a malignant scepticism. <laughs> Perhaps um, many of us get disillusioned or lose faith at one point or another. I'm, I'm sorry it was, it was so young. And, 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 and despite this, you know, years after this, I loved in the synagogue sometimes and at home, I loved the lyrical passages in the Bible. I was, I was very conscious of the beauty 
of uh, of a lot of prayer, a lot of religious language. I mean, one one had to think in terms of of, of heaven and hell. I, I was fascinated by the biblical figures, although deeply disturbed, as I think many children are, by the um, the, sac- the near sacrifice of Isaac. You know what 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 got into Abraham? When you're saying you're not quite sure what your parents believed, um, but they they practice a certain orthodoxy um, and and you... yeah, well they kept a kosher house. They they went to synagogue. They observed the festivals. Um, your father liked all the Jewish food. Oh, 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 oh indeed. He, 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 he adored them, and he got, and and uh, his patients would feed him, and he he knew the contents of all their refrigerators, and they would feed the good doctor, and I would go with him to the East End, and he, um, my father was 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 a man of enormous build, and he became became huge in later life from his love of of Jewish food, um, but what did they actually believe? I don't know how much belief in fact, enters into being Jewish. It may be that obedience and practice and the law, following the law, uh, halacha, is, is, is sufficient. And there's certainly very little feeling of an afterlife, of heaven or hell. Uh, the, the religious life is entirely to be, to be lived, lived here. But I don't know what they believed. I sometimes don't know what I believe. Well, you've described yourself as a, an old Jewish atheist, whatever that means. <laughs> yeah, or whatever that means. <laughs> what does that mean to you? Uh, well, I mean, um, on the one hand, as I say, I, um, uh, I have no sense and, and possibly never had, never have had any sense of, of an agency, a personal God, uh, a paternal God or a law-giving God in the sky. Um, on the other hand, I'm I'm very I'm conscious of coming from uh, a Jewish culture and uh, from uh, and of a culture I think of of curiosity and questioning, uh, which uh, and debate which is partly Jewish. I sometimes wonder whether my love of footnotes uh, has something to do with the Talmud, which my my father adored, which of course consists of of a, of a central text with commentaries on it, and then commentaries on the commentaries and commentaries on on the commentaries. The idea of of the law is very central, I think, in Jewish religion and sometimes takes on an almost mystical form where the law is seen as a beautiful woman who will perhaps reveal a tiny bit of herself to the student. And, uh, I mean, the, you know, the, the very word revealed or revelation goes along with that, you know, that sort of image. And, uh, I, um, and I think nature, for me, somehow becomes equated with with the law, and specifically um, with the periodic table, this wonderful organization of the elements, which entranced me as as a child, and which still absolutely entrances me. So that you're uh, reaching uh, so and that, pulling one out of your pocket. <laughs> There's I, one in your wallet, a periodic I, I, table. I've kept it in my wallet. For fifty-five years, um, but um, you know, I somehow equated this with the tablets of the law. I imagined Mendeleev, who invented it as a sort of Moses, bringing down the the periodic tablets of the law. But uh, this sense of law uh, and cosmic law may be a sort of a sort of uh, Jewish concept in a way. Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Oliver Sachs, you, you not only went on house calls with your father, you ha- you described quite touching moments. You went swimming together. Oh, oh, he he loved swimming. He he'd been quite a, a swimming champ when he was younger, and really he he got all of us, all four of his sons, into the water when we were a few weeks old, and and swimming is is instinctive at that age. And um, I used to love swimming with him. I think we all did. 
and at first as a you know as a kid i obviously couldn't couldn't keep up with him though i think from about 12 or, or so on i would start to match his strokes um, and you still swim two hours a day? Um, yeah, I, I still swim every, every morning if I can. I'm going to swim this afternoon, I think. My father couldn't walk much past the age of 90. He had very bad arthritis in, in his knees, but we would sort of wheel him to a pool and, <laughs> and sort of tip him in. And he'd take, he'd take off like a porpoise. He, he swam till his dying day. Um, and I think he had um, his his father had also been a good swimmer, and apparently would always wear his yamulka, his 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 uh, skull, skull cap. cap in in the water, and so and so there's there's a long sort of on my father's side a long history of love of love of swimming, um, and I think there was almost a mystical feeling about this buoyant, transparent, thick, supportive medium. Um, it, it, it becomes a sort of spiritual as well as a physical necessity. And actually, for myself, I think I, I do, as it were, a certain amount of my writing in the water. But sometimes when I'm swimming, sentences and paragraphs and images start swimming through me. And then I sort of come out dripping and sort of, sort of try to try get them onto paper before I forget them. I, I, I adore swimming. Does it still remind you of your father? Um, I, I, I think so, yes. How would you describe your relationship with him? Um, I think that it was not as intense and charged and perhaps ambivalent as it was with my mother, whom I passionately loved, but was also, um, also rather afraid of and sometimes perhaps almost hated, at least when I was pushed into things which I didn't want to do. Uh, there was almost too much identification there. I think with my father, it was probably an easier but lighter relationship. But it was very much a relationship of doing things together, whether it was going on house calls or occasionally enjoying a cigar with him. I also, I also have his love of, of Havanas. <laughs> uh, he also had a, a, motor, a motorcycle, and I had motorcycles. But I don't know how much real close conversation there ever was with with my father and it was uh, it was more more in action okay uncle tungsten tell me about uncle dave when i came back to london i met this older brother of my mother's uncle dave who um manufactured incandescent bulbs with tungsten filaments and who had a firm called Tungstelite. And um, he um, and I visited him in his factory and his laboratories and I think he, uh, I think he was a born teacher as, as well as, as much else and I think he probably enjoyed the eagerness of his, of his little nephew. And uh, uncle's enthusiasm for chemistry and metallurgy and mineralogy uh, was was immense and and sort of um, you know and I think got strongly strongly into me and he would also give give me little bars of tungsten um, and and this he also had a great interest in uh, not just in chemistry and technology but but the history of chemistry and uh, uh, and the biographies of, of chemists. And so science was presented to me as having, as being a human endeavor, as having a very human face. I mean, uh, the, the, there were stories about Shaler, the great Swedish chemist who, uh, who identified tungsten as an element in the, in the 1780s and, um, and, and also other elements. And, and I, I think there was probably, I think I thought of my uncle as, as a sort of Shaler figure, as a sort of 18th century figure. And uh, this made me want to do 18th century chemistry, uh, so, so to speak. Uh, I, I what, what, think, did, what did that mean? What would um, that mean? Well, um, what it, uh, it did not mean looking at current textbooks. Uh, it meant... Um, finding out the old ways of doing things or being told them and then trying, say, to, um, when I especially, um, you know, he showed me how one could um, smelt various tungsten ores. Uh, tungsten occurs in different minerals uh, and obtain the metal, precisely as had been done in the 1780s. 
and and later I wanted to do this for myself. Uh, something like a dozen different metals were discovered in the 18th century, and this entranced me. I wanted to sort of repeat all the experiments and sort of get in, as it were, to chemistry at its beginning. And and you 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 were able to set up a little laboratory. Your parents encouraged you. you, um, you Oh yeah, well they um, uh, they were really sort of very supportive. There there was this 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 back room. It was an old laundry room. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the house had innumerable rooms, some of which were disused, and it had it had running water and a sink and windows and cupboards. And I set up quite an elaborate laboratory. Um, you know, my uncles gave me things. I spent all my pocket money on chemicals. And at that time, you could buy anything. You know, a 10-year-old could buy potassium cyanide or thallium salts or explosive things. Um, I I did have a few explosions and, and noxious gases. And I would sometimes have to run out to the lawn at the back, which and rapidly it, developed sort of charred patches. You know, and you managed I, to singe your brother's eyebrows. Um, oh, yeah, indeed. There was, there was a great sheet of flame once from hydrogen which caught fire. Uh, but Marcus was was very very tolerant. He, he grew the eyebrows back. I think I was uh, uh, I was lucky that that I wasn't hurt. It didn't really hurt anyone else. And um, but I think also one one learned prudence. One learned responsibility. Uh, and you and you maybe have to have actual contact with dangerous things to to learn this. You can't have this now. I mean, chemistry sets now have got sort of sort of baking soda and vinegar and chalk. And I, I mean, it's, it's like the kitchen chemistry. One does when one's six. It's, it's, it's not real chemistry anymore. Uh, you can't really see these, these, these lovely transformations and, and things. And my chemistry also, my little lab, it doubled as a dark room. And, um, and it was such fun. It was such an adventure. And a lot of the books of earlier centuries convey this. I mean, two of my favorite books, they were both 1860-ish books. One was called Chemical Recreations, and the other was called The Playbook of Metals. And uh, later, when I came on to do science at school, I didn't like it nearly as much. There wasn't the freedom, there wasn't the sense of play and adventure. It had all become rather fixed and formulaic and and exam-oriented. Well, you you say that you, you you sought the special dangers of of chemistry, in some way as a way of dealing with your own fears that 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 by care and vigilance and prudence one could learn to control or find a way through the hazardous world. Mm. Were you, were you conscious of that aspect of what you were doing at the time? I don't know whether I was conscious or not, but in retrospect, I think I, I suspect that this is what goes on and um, you know you know with with a book like this looking back 50 years ago i mean there's a danger of hindsight of trying to sort of retroject um feelings and insights which the boy wouldn't have um uh, i think i you know much i think was just done instinctively and impelled by some sort of drive which i couldn't explain or understand uh, whether it was the drive to science or occasionally the drive to, to mischief of, of one sort and another. Um, as when I, I um, imprisoned our, our favorite dog, a, a dachshund, in the coal bin where she almost died in the winter of 1940. I think this was a sort of indirect cry for help, a way of saying to my parents, get me out of my coal bin. Because uh, you were imprisoned at, at the school uh, in the country. Uh, yes, um, but I, um, I mean, or perhaps this wasn't so. Although, although I, I suspect that this is so, um, but I, I don't know that the child can interpret, you know, his own behaviors or interests too much. Oh, you described something when you were twelve that was strange, where you were under a table. A favorite table that was a kind of protective oh, table. Oh, the, the Morrison table. Yeah, well, that was another another freaky thing. Um, a lot of houses had these uh, immensely strong iron tables, uh, the notion being that even uh, if the house collapsed, one, one would be uh, saved from being crushed by the masonry. But I, I love this table. I... I uh, which I think I regarded as a sort of protector, and 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 I would sort of make a, a sort of nest in it. Uh, sometimes, if there was an airway, the whole family would be there, 
but after one air raid, my parents were rather startled when I emerged to see a sort of strange, bald circle on my scalp. And they, they, they were very perplexed. They, they wondered if it could be ringworm, although they'd never heard a ringworm appearing so suddenly. I didn't say anything, and in particular, I concealed the razor, my brother's razor, which I'd taken with me uh, under the table. And I was taken along to a skin specialist the next day, and he looked at me. I felt he was probably looking right through me, and he, he pulled out a hair or two and looked at, under, un, looked at it under the microscope. And then he said, dermatitis artifacta, uh, um, which, uh, uh, which meant that, that, that I'd done this myself. And, uh, and I sort of blushed a deep crimson. But um, why I did it, uh, was never clear to me and was not actually discussed with my parents, although it was obviously symptomatic behavior of some sort. When you first went to the Science Museum and saw the periodic table and became fascinated with... with Ecstasy. Ex okay, um, beyond fascinated. Uh, well, you know, I, I'd, I'd, I was 12 then, and um, I, uh, I'd already... Um, I think probably got quite a bit of chemical knowledge. I'd seen many of the elements and their compounds. I knew that elements would fall into certain families that say uh, chlorine and bromine and iodine were similar and sodium and potassium were similar. But seeing the table and this wonderful scheme uh, whereby all the elements are shown in relation to one another and having a mysterious pattern of recurrence so that every eighth element uh, at least to begin with, uh, seemed to echo the properties of the element before it. And uh, uh, this, this seemed to me the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen, the most economical, the most elegant. Uh, all of the elements, all of the building blocks of the universe fell into an order. They fell into a natural order and an order partly determined, as my aunt used to say, by numbers. It was, I think, the the numerical quality of the of recurrence which which so fascinated me. The fact that if you arrange the elements by increasing atomic weight, you would get this sort of wonderful cycling. Um, although, why this should be so was utterly unknown to me, as it was utterly unknown to Mendeleev when he'd made the table in 1869. I mean, there was a huge mystery here. Uh, I somehow want to say like the Trinity. I don't know why I want to say that. I, I mean, the sense of the mysterious and of some profound uh, fundamental um, law which must determine all of these recurrences, I think, was, was, was very strong. There was more to the period. The periodic table was beautiful, but as it were, there was more to it than met the eye. Or, or, or one wondered what, what made it so. Of course, it was 50 years um, before the actual explanation of the periodic table came out. And this required a, um, you know, a completely new... Uh, idea of atoms as being complex and as having sort of nuclei and, and electrons and special numbers of electrons whirling around them. In the case of tungsten, there are 74 electrons whirling around the nucleus. And this is not arbitrary. I mean, tungsten couldn't be anything else, say, except element 74. And the 74 electrons are arranged in particular ways, which gives tungsten its, its physical and chemical properties. And so somehow then, as earlier it had been with plants, sort of the um, numbers and, and actuality came together for me. Oliver Sachs, as you moved into your teen years, you moved away from chemistry. And in fact, you, you call this chapter the end of the affair. Why do you think your passion for chemistry diminished? Um, I, I finally, I, I, I don't know. And, and I think this chapter ends on a, on a sort of bemused note. Um, um, some of it may, uh, may just have been the end of childhood or the end of boyhood. I, I think I think with all of us, there is some point where the the heightened, mysterious, mythical, magical uh, 
a world of uh, of childhood um, gets fainter. I, I, I mean, and I, I you know, and, and sort of Wordsworth always writes about this and, and, and how the freshness and glory sort of vanish in the, the light of common day. He also wonders about the... Uh, um, uh, about the shades of the prison house, which for him are school. Um, I think doing science at school partly destroyed my interest in in science, in chemistry, because it um, uh, what had been sort of private and secret and playful and adventurous uh, became uh, fixed and uh, and competitive and public and and prosaic. It, it didn't. It, it it wasn't a sort of holy. A holy thing anymore, but then of course i um I was becoming an adolescent and uh, and the sense of the organic was happening, sort of hair was sprouting all over me. I started to have strange stirrings in in my loins, as they say and um uh and sort of I think the human and the biological world were beginning to to excite and distract me more. Um, uh, and there was a great hunger for the personal, although maybe indirectly, this party took the form of a hunger for, for music. I had to have music, especially Mozart, but, but, but music sort of called to me and, and, and made, moved me and made me want to howl. And, and there was a sort of beauty and wonder quite different from the sort of scientific mathematical one. Uh, the, the physical science wasn't enough. Um, I think there was also a, um, a sort of uh, a message in a way from my parents, well, okay, you're 14, you're a big boy now, you're bermitzvah, grown up, time for play is over, uh, you're going to be a medical student, you're going to follow the family business, and uh, which ultimately I did. Um, but um, And I think another thing was that um, the sort of chemistry I loved was descriptive, naturalistic, sort of 19th century chemistry. It was very sensuous for me. It was the, the, uh, the colors and the textures and the, and the smells. Uh, and, and all the transformations in, in chemistry. Although I love numbers, uh, chemistry also seemed to be becoming too mathematical and almost almost a part of of, of, of physics and of quantum theory. And um, and I think I'm basically a sort of a a naturalist at heart, a sort of observer, describer, describer, naturalist, novelist, and. Um, Perhaps I, I had the feeling, although this certainly wasn't articulated at the time, that biology and medicine were still at the relatively primitive level where a, a sort of an observer, describer, uh, collector, systematizer, synthesizer, um, you know, could feel at home. With, uh, it, had, it, it had not become too recondite and, uh, and abstract as chemistry had become. Um, so, I mean, in a way, I wanted to be a sort of 19th, 18th or 19th century chemist, but that didn't make sense in the middle of the 20th century. You still carry the periodic table. Do you still dream about it? Oh, yes. I, 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 um, uh, I, I often think of the periodic table. I dream of it. Um, I, I love the license plates of cars, especially in New York. You see, you know, U, uh, U, 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 V, W, sort of, you know, uranium, vanadium, tungsten, yttrium, and it's especially nice that they have their atomic weights or their atomic numbers. I like to see, you know, a U92 or Y39, uh, a W74. And I, I often have strange chemical dreams. Um, I was very close to two friends, Jonathan Miller, whom you know, and, and Eric Korn. But, uh, you know, the, uh, the three musketeers become the three iron metals. We become iron, nickel, and cobalt. Um, Which are you? So I'm usually iron. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there, there are many sort of strange dreams, and some of them, the, the grid of New York becomes conflated with the grid of the periodic table. And I always end up at, at the junction of 6th Street and 6th Avenue. And the buildings there have a strange look in my dream. And I realize that it's a tungsteny look. Now, tungsten, in fact, is, a, is in period six and group six, as it's called. I should add that there's no such junction actually right, in, in, New in New York. It's yeah. only part of my dream New York. But I... Uh, 
I, I do regard the periodic table. I mean, for me, it was the first revelation, I think, of the, of the beauty of law and the sort of infinite depth of determination and reality and the simplicity, in a way, in economy. And, uh, and 55 years later, um, I haven't seen anything better. I mean, the genome maybe is going in that direction, but that's much more complicated and arbitrary. Nothing, nothing arbitrary, I think, in this way, in the physical sciences. Uh, things are either um, necessary or impossible. You're not in the world of, of, of contingency and, uh, and variation, which are, the, of course, the great wonder of, of biology. It's, it's a simpler, simpler world. In, in many ways, your memoir, Uncle Tungsten, seems to have been the story of your childhood search for order and stability in the world. Where do you find it now? Um, well, I, um, I have um, friends and relationships which, uh, which seem to have fidelity and stability. I, I love my patients and the clinical work. And um, uh, I love looking at the mechanisms of the, uh, of the brain and the mind. And uh, until recently, I, I got a very nice feeling of the solidity of the buildings and the streets around me. Now, like everyone, since September the 11th... <laughs> oh, you live in New York. Yes, the, you know, the, the fabric of this has been shaken, and I think some rather, rather deep sense of... Of, of instability sort of shows itself, but uh, uh, the sheer, um, you know, once Doris Lessing made a comment on on, on one of my books on awakenings, uh, she said it shows what a knife edge we live on. Now, in general, I don't think we live on a knife edge. I mean, it's true one might be killed outside, something might happen, and this and that. Um, but, but I think there's a certain reassuring solidity about the body. Now, it's different from the solidity of tungsten. The solidity of the, of the body and the organism is because it's adaptable and flexible and resilient and has many fallback mechanisms. Uh, it's the resilience of health which is different, as it were, from the, uh, of, uh, from, uh, and, and it's the wonder of the organic. And I think probably it's this now. Um, and the fact that, on the whole, people's characters are relatively predictable, are, are relatively stable, um, and, uh, and interests endure and enlarge. Um, I mean, I think the, in a sense, the stability and the, of life itself and the constancy and the growth as, as well as the adventure um, and the risk. But, but this, this is now sort of um, my support. It's, it's always such a treat to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oliver Sacks with me in Toronto in 2001. He died in 2015. He was 82. Uncle Tungsten, Memories of a Chemical Boyhood, and On the Move, a Life, are available in paperback from Vintage. Several collections of essays have been published posthumously, The River of Consciousness, and Everything in Its Place, First Loves and Last Tales. Last year, a new opera inspired by his early book, Awakenings, had its premiere in St. Louis, Missouri. This week's show was produced by Mary Stinson. Katie Swales is also a producer. Melissa Gismondi is associate producer. The senior producer of Writers & Company is Sandra Rabinovich. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, the master of the political thriller, John le Carré. I spoke with him in 2017 about A Legacy of Spies, which draws on two of his classics, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.